Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome to the Colossae Sherwood podcast. Um, this is kind of a sermon replacement podcast for the sermon of March 14th, 2021. Uh, we didn't manage to capture the sermon audio, so I'm going to go through my notes and um, just so we have something here, we can keep track of what we said. And in case uh, people didn't make it that day, they can look, listen back. So uh, if you don't have it, go ahead and grab your Bible. Um, and um, go ahead and turn with me to uh, Colossians chapter two. We're going to be finishing off uh, the chapter uh, today. So I'll, I'll go ahead and pray and then we can kind of dive in. Lord, thanks so much for your word and thank you that your word is living and moving and speaking to us today, thousands of years after it was penned. We're grateful to you, Lord. We love you. Amen. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, read the text for today. So uh, like I said, we're going to be in Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to start um, all the way down in verse 20. So it says this, If with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why, as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not handle, do not touch, do not taste, referring to things that all perishes there used according to human precepts and teachings. These have indeed an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So to understand this passage, I think there's kind of three main building blocks that we, we need to grasp in order to get where the passage is taking us. So the three building blocks would be, what does it mean when it says elemental spirits? What are these like ascetic sayings that are in quotes? And then what, what, what is this goal of stopping the indulgence of the flesh? Uh, and once we kind of establish what these three things mean, then we can go back um, and see what the passage means for us today. So let's go ahead and start with uh, this word elemental spirits. Now, in the Greek, it's uh, stoichion, uh, and it's a, this is a strange word. It's a hard word to translate. Um, if you want to hear a much longer sermon that focuses on that word, uh, you can go back and listen to the sermon we did on Colossians 2, 6 through 8. Um, and in that message, we talk a lot more about this word stoichion, but the definition means of, it's like any first thing from which others belonging to the same series or composite whole take their rise. And it's an element or a first principle. Now, what's weird about it is, is that it's kind of like if you were to try to have a word to describe basic building blocks, structure of reality or life. It's kind of like the stoichion of the English language would be that it's A, then B, then C, then D. Or stoichiometry is the study of how, um, of, of how like atoms and, and forming together, coming together, like the building blocks of our reality. And it's, it's hard a word to translate for a variety of reasons, but the best, my best understanding of it is that it is? Uh, it means your worldview, your perspective, your your understanding of reality, perhaps even your cultural um, foothold, the where you stand, your and see out from. It would be your stoichion. Um, and this is here's uh, chapter two, verse eight again. See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, or according to the stoichion of the world, and not according to Christ. And so this word, I think it's down to our own culture. And this is what Paul is challenging the Colossians in. Okay. 
All right, so Stoikion, elemental spirits. That's building block number one. Let's look at building block uh, number two. Uh, so building block number two, this is um, the ascetic sayings, okay? So the ascetic sayings are, these are the, your Bible probably has these sayings in quotes because they seem to be sayings. Um, and these sayings would be a part of the Greek Stoikion or their ascetic philosophy, or I shouldn't necessarily say Greek, maybe Hellenistic um, philosophy, their ascetic philosophy. So asceticism itself, it's a philosophy that's characterized by voluntary abstinence from all kinds of like worldly pleasures um, and, and, and often with the aim of pursuing religious or spiritual goals. And this was likely popular among both the Jewish, Jewish and the Greek residents of Colossae, but just like all philosophies, it wasn't followed uh, by everyone, but uh, just enough people for it to be addressed, right? And severity to the body, this is a part and this is um, a part of denying your body in as many ways as possible in order to gain mastery of it. There's, there's a lot of this that's rooted in um, Plato's dualism, where all physical reality is evil and all spiritual reality is good. And so as you deny your physical reality, you draw closer uh, to your spiritual reality, which is good. Um, and I, there's so many problems with that. Um, but the, the thing to kind of take away here when he says, do not taste, do not touch, you know, you know, that's that these are all tenets of this ascetic philosophy. And then the third building block is um, stopping the indulgence of the flesh. This is the goal. This is what they're after. Now, the question I would ask is, is stopping the indulgence of the flesh a good thing or a bad thing? And I, I mean, I think it's actually a really good thing. I mean, Paul talks about, you know dying, putting to death, therefore, all these sins and evils and, and you know, the, the worldly pleasures and all this different kind of stuff. So actually stopping the indulgence of the flesh, which is the goal of this passage, let's read it again. Uh, you know, if you died with Christ to the elemental spirits of the world, as it, why is if you're still alive in the world, do you submit to its regulations? And it goes through the regulations. And then he ends by saying, but these are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So the goal thereafter is stopping the indulgence of the flesh. So why is Paul harping on them? Isn't this a good goal to have? And I think the reason why he's bringing this up here is because he's he's going after um, the way in which they're going about the stopping of the indulgence of the flesh. Now, um, and this, I think, is actually a really classic example of syncretism, okay? So syncretism is, if you don't know what what it, that word means, it's basically the blending of two or more religious belief systems kind of into one new system, or, or maybe incorporating beliefs from unrelated traditions into a religious tradition, okay? And as missionaries, you have to be really careful about syncretism, missionaries, global missionaries, uh, because you might bring Christianity, uh, but unless you know lots, like know a culture really, really well, you might accidentally have them start just taking pieces of Christianity and just melding them in to a pagan religion of some kind, and then thus creating a syncretistic, so what it's called religion. Uh, I was uh, at a perspectives class like a, a decade ago, maybe, and there was a, a guy um, who was a missionary in Papua New Guinea, and he was sharing, and he was talking about, he was with Wycliffe, and they did Bible translation stuff, and um, he shared about how they were among this people for seven years before they released the translation of the Bible. Because when you're doing Bible translation, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. You have to uh, learn the language. 
you then have to, particularly in Papua New Guinea, where there's like 800 language groups, um, which is a lot. Uh, they've already translated the Bible into 500 of those languages. People like this guy and his family and many others like him translating the Bible. You have to, for this indigenous population, not only do they have to learn the language, they then have to create a written language uh, because they didn't have any writing. Um, and then they had to teach people how to read the written language. And then they had to go and translate the Bible from the original text into this new language that they, the written language anyway, that they created. So it's a ton of work. So seven years in, they're getting ready to finally release the, the translation of the Bible in this language. And they're having a conversation. This is two months before they're going to give them the Bible finally. And um, they're talking. And one of the natives talked about, um, used a word that um, this missionary had never heard before. And he said, what's that word? He goes, well, that's the word for God. And he said, I thought this other word was the word for God. And they said, oh, no, that's the evil God. Well, the evil God word was the only word they had heard of for God for the last seven years. And so imagine if in your Bible, every time it said God, instead it said the word Satan. That was the Bible they were about to release to these people. And thankfully, obviously, providentially, uh, they realized their error and they corrected it. Um, and that made all the world of difference. But you can see how careful and how thoughtful you have to be when it comes to being a student of a culture as a missionary to not create a syncretistic religion. And this is what Paul is um, pushing, uh, pu pushing against um, here is you have Christians that are going after a really good Christian ideal, the stopping the indulgence of the flesh, but they've married Christianity in with Greek philosophy. It's a, it's syncretism. And um, th this is where our culture plays into it, because I, I'm going to tell you now there's syncretism alive and well in the American church today. And that's what we have to be on guard for and watch out for. Um, because culture is, is such a powerful move. I mean, it, it's, it's such a powerful force in our world. And I'm not, a, I'm not trying to say culture is evil at all. I mean, culture is, culture is beautiful. Culture is created by God. Where we get into a problem is when our allegiance or when we mix culture uh, into our religion, um, into our relationship with Jesus. Um, and, and, and I'll get to that um, in a second. Um, last week, uh, so here, here's what I'm trying to say. The reality is that seeking freedom from self-indulgence is a beautiful and Christ-like thing to do, okay? But the way they're going about it is the problem. And last, oh, I guess it wouldn't be last week now, uh, but a few weeks ago when we covered verses 16 and 17, I'm going to read it real quick. It says, therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. And that's that's where we're going after here. So all these things, do not taste, do not touch, do not whatever, st to stop the indulgence of the flesh, like th those are a shadow the substance of it belongs to Jesus and problems arise when we are turning to the shadow rather than to the source for our life change. Okay. One of my favorite authors, particularly when it comes to the gospel and culture is a guy called Leslie Newbegin. He was a missionary in India for like 30 years. And then he moved back to the UK where he was from to live out the remainder of his life. And he came back and was shocked. Uh, and he's got this great quote. He says, 
having spent most of my working life in India and then come back, I have discovered in a way to my own astonishment that one is in a culture where you attempt to communicate the gospel, you are going completely against the stream. So he wrote a book. He wrote several books actually about approaching Western society from the perspective of a missionary and his analysis of Western culture and perspective has been really helpful for me as I've now lived here for the last 12 years or so. And, and he said this about culture. Um, he said, the idea that one can or could at any time separate out by some process of distillation, a pure gospel unadulterated by any cultural accretions is an illusion. It is, in fact, an abandonment of the gospel, for the gospel is about word made flesh. And that's what's beautiful about this, is the gospel takes place in culture, and that we get to share the beauty and the good news to the culture that we live in, regardless of where that is. You could be in Albania, 6,000 miles away from here. You could be here in Sherwood. You could be in Jerusalem itself. You could be anywhere and the gospel is going to speak that culture the quote continues there can never be a culture free gospel yet the gospel which is the be from the beginning uh, to the end embodied in culturally conditioned form calls into question all cultures including the one in which it was originally embodied i mean that that's what's beautiful about the gospel is that it calls all culture into question while being embodied in a way that that culture can understand it. So when we come to our text for today and we ask the questions of ourselves, what kingdom values am I turning to culture for answers for, for how to achieve these, these kingdom values, right? So what am I going after? That's a good kingdom value, but I'm using my culture's methodology of getting there rather than using Jesus's methodology of getting there. So what I've done is I've rewritten our passage here in Colossians 2, 20 through 23. I've rewritten it with a couple different goals and how American culture bleeds into these kingdom goals, and at least in my own life. Okay, So uh, I'll go ahead and start with the goal of finding true treasure. And remember, um, I'm, I'm reading my own paraphrase translation of this verse for rather than the goal of stopping the being the stopping of the indulgence of the flesh the goal is finding true treasure so here is the paraphrase if with christ you died to materialism why as if you were still alive in it do you submit to its regulations save your money invest in 401ks or roth iras buy nice things referring to things that won't last according to human tradition and wisdom the, these regulations definitely have an appearance of wisdom in promoting independence and wealth and fiscal prudence, but they're of no value in finding true treasure. Or uh, what if the goal is instead of finding true treasure, what if the goal is finding our identity? Okay, I'm going to read this new paraphrase. So if with Christ you died to individualism, why as if you were still living in it, do you submit to regulations like trust yourself, define your own identity, don't listen to what others say about you, referring to things that point us to self and not God, according to human wisdom and teachings. These sayings have an appearance of wisdom in promoting like self-determinism, self-worth and self-care, but they're of no value in finding our true identity. And we could do this with this passage all day long, fill in the blank, the goal that is a good kingdom goal and the way culture twists and guides us and tells us to go about that goal. 
And this is what's hard about approaching the gospel and cultures that requires a ton of reflection and effort to see which parts of our own culture are challenged by the gospel and which parts are upheld. Okay. So how do we tell when our culture is speaking louder to us than the words of Jesus? I mean, yeah, I mean, I mean, the part of the American way is right. Like pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, right? What if I'm dealing with sin in my life and I'm trying to go about it my way of just white knuckling it until I get it under control as opposed to the gospel Jesus way, which is one of surrender, repentance, forgiveness, and getting up and continuing, not being defined by my sin, not focusing on my sin, but being forgiven of my sin surrendering it to Jesus and, 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 and walking with him in love, not in condemnation, but in love. You know, I, I, I think the, the way forward for us is to be immersed in the good news, in the gospel, in relationship with Jesus. Um, the story that Jesus tells us is it's one that speaks to our desire for treasure, our need for identity, our need for purity. Remember, all these things are a shadow and he is the substance. He is the source. And this is why regular devotion to God's word and time with God's people, it's so important. It helps us understand our own lens for the world that we live in. You know, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount is constantly comparing the sayings of the day to the kingdom of God. You have heard it was said, but I say to you, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. And the reality is, is we must be so dedicated to the good news and to his story um, that it shines a light on our own culture. And it shines a light on when we're using our own culture to try to get to kingdom values rather than using Jesus and his story as the way uh, as the way we go. So um, yeah, as we spend this week being pushed and pulled by the currents of culture, uh, which by the way, again, are not all bad, but can be so beautiful. Let's remember the greatest story of all. Let's remember the God who sacrificed himself for us and step into our true identity, build up treasure in heaven and find our purpose in his story. Amen. Thanks for listening.